Hey Nation, Kevin Crispin here holding down the fort as David and Brent decided they needed to travel for some research or something. I'm not sure, I never listened to Brent and David was unreachable for comment. But have no fear, the horror continues in the blurriest of ways with a mega episode about the Barnabet Axe Murders. In this Blurry Photos Archive episode, Flora is joined by authors Alan Gotro and Dr. Daryl Hippensteel, as well as numerous Louisianans to explore the ghastly tale of the Barnabet Axe Murders. So that sounds... fun? Enjoy? This episode contains graphic descriptions of brutal crimes. Listener discretion is strongly advised. My name is Clementine Bernabe. I was born and partly raised near the town of St. Martinville and moved to Lafayette about three years ago when I began to, to, to lead a life of degradation. Turn of the 20th century America and Axe Murders, a duo that danced a waltz of death with seemingly every corner of the country as its dance floor. Famously in New Orleans, where jazz music ironically paused the dance one night in 1919. Less famously, but perhaps more brutal, were another series of axe murders spread around southern Louisiana prior to the night that jazz floated and mixed in the air over a terrified city. It was a chilling spree of killing with several suspects, unknown motives, and rampant speculation, including a possible cult and the use of voodoo. I've never been married. It was it was while in the company of, of two other men and two two women while in New Iberia that we met this old man who, who told us that if he could sell us cangers, we could do as we pleased. And we would never be detected and we would in fact be protected from the hands of the law by the mere fact of these kind just being in our possession. So we bought them, paid $3 each for them, and left New Iberia the same night returning to Lafayette when we began to plan our actions. Now don't get me wrong, we hadn't even decided on, on committing any murders, but while we were discussing our future plans, the question came up as to whether we could kill and be protected by the hoodoos. One of the gang members, they was instructed to go to New Iberia and interview the hoodoo man who said we were safe in any and all actions that we might do. Our lives at all times be fully protected by the power of the hoodoos. Police working the case kept tracing back to one family and eventually one person. Clementine Barnabet, which didn't make a whole lot of sense just looking at the unassuming 17-year-old. But her eventual confession relayed, in no uncertain terms, to not judge that book by its cover. It was it was sometime during ah, 1910, I believe in the fall, I, I went to rain with my companions and we drew lots, you know, to see who would make the first attempt at the hoodoos and committing murders. The lot fell to me. And the 
importantly, I got to work that night. We're looking at the Barnabed Axe Murders on this episode of Blurry Photos. I'm your host, David Flora. Welcome to another episode of this year's Blurry Photober! Once again, we're diving into the terrifying depths of human depravity. And I have to warn you one more time about the graphic nature of this case. Use discretion if you're squeamish or prefer not to hear about extreme violence. This is a fascinating story that has mystery elements, a touch of the supernatural, and of course, true crime. We'll be taking a look at the life of Clementine Barnabet, the police's investigation of the murders that happened, and the trial and sentencing for those murders. I've had a ton of help this episode, including readings of articles and an interview with Alan Gotro and Dr. Daryl Hippensteel, authors of Dark Bayou, Infamous Louisiana Homicides. Alan is a writer, teacher, and lecturer with a master's degree in history from the University of New Orleans, and also hosts the YouTube channel True Crime, Man's Dark Imagination. And Dr. Hippensteel is a sergeant with the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office and a professor of criminal justice at Delgado Community College. They were kind enough to discuss the Barnabet case with me, and I'll be including their audio throughout the episode. I'll take this opportunity to point out the pronunciation of Clementine's name, varies depending on source, from Barnabet to Barnabay to Bernabay to Bernabet. I'll be going with Barnabet for the most part, but you might hear it differently from time to time. Also, some of the readings have been slightly edited for outdated and offensive terminology. We'll begin with the first news that broke of something amiss in Crowley, Louisiana, February 11th, 1911. Police were called to the home of the Byers family, where it was discovered that Walter Byers, his wife, and six-year-old son, had been butchered in the night. It was thought the culprit might have entered through a rear window armed with an axe and brutally killed the family of three as they slept. The viciousness of the crime mystified police, especially when coupled with neighbor testimonies to Walter's character as he was described as being an, quote, industrious and reputable man with no known enemies. This case was likened to an eerily similar case from a year and three months prior, when an Edna Opelousas and three children were found in much the same manner in nearby Rain, Louisiana. With little to nothing to go on, the buyer's case closed as a mystery. I went to my sister who lived in Rain near the, the OG Railroad Depot. And later that night, I, I went uptown disguised as a man. I, I secured an axe in a yard near the cabin where I killed the other and four children. 
You see, I saw that the light was burning. And by that, I could easily see inside. I saw the mother sleeping in her bed. Then I decided I went into the house and there began the work which we had planned. <laughs> on entering the house, I struck the woman on the right temple and killed her instantly. One of the children was awakened by the noise and before he could even raise his head from the pillow, I struck him a blow somewhere near the left ear then, then struck the other two. <laughs> it's funny because I, I left the man's clothes which I wore in the house and left the house in women's clothes. I returned to my sister's house and, and later during the same night I, I boarded a night train for Lafayette arriving here about midnight yeah I think it was it was about 9 when I killed them on my return to Lafayette I reported the matter to other members of the gang and, and we watched the development in the case with great interest when we saw that we had not been detected, we decided that the hoodoos had done their part and we were safe. Not two weeks later, on February 24th, a woman by the name of Nina Martin got disturbing news as she was just beginning her day in nearby Lafayette, Louisiana, about 25 miles east of Crowley. Her son had come busting in the house to tell her that her sister, Mimi, and her family were dead. The story and its gruesome details ran in the Lafayette Advertiser four days later. Saturday night, a black family consisting of husband and wife and two children were brutally murdered in the Trahan and Doucette addition just beyond the railroad track where it crosses Vermilion Street. The victims of the murder were being Alexandra Andrus, his wife Mimi, his son Joachim, aged three, and baby Agnes, 11 months old. Sheriff Lacoste and other officers and Deputy Coroner Clark at once went to the scene. The man and wife and boy had been brained with an axe while sleeping in the bed, and then the baby, lying in its cradle, was struck and its head crushed. The man and woman were taken up by the murderer and placed on their knees beside the bed, the woman's arm over the man's shoulder, as if in the attitude of prayer. The baby was then placed by the mother on the bed. Then the murderer escaped through the kitchen door where he had entered. The crime, it is thought, was committed after midnight, as an examination by Dr. Clark disclosed some slight warmth in the bodies. A coroner's jury was held, which for want of evidence brought in a verdict of death by unknown party. Sheriff Lacoste and the officers suspected an escaped lunatic from Pineville by the name of Garçon Godfrey. They learned from the mother, whom they arrested, that Godfrey was at Maurice. Deputy Peck and Officer Edwin Campbell went out and got him, but were unable to connect him with the crime as parties at Maurice testified to his having been there all the time. They brought him back and placed him in jail to return to the asylum. Sheriff Lacoste and the officers are making every effort to discover the terrible criminal. Several arrests have been made in connection with the case, but the sheriff has nothing positive to give out yet. About two months ago, another black family consisting of father, mother, and child was murdered under similar circumstances at Crowley. And about a year and a half ago, a black family of four, man, wife, and two children were killed in the same manner at Rain. The crimes are so alike that they may be the work of the same terrible monster.
Investigations were led by Lafayette Parish Sheriff Louis Lacoste, a monumental task given such a lack of evidence, motive, and legitimate suspect. It didn't seem like a burglary, as nothing had been stolen, but beyond that, it was a frustrating amount of nothing to go along with a grisly body count. And that body count continued to rise. Five more people lay dead on the morning of March 22nd, this time with a couple notable differences. The family of Lewis Cassaway, including his wife and three children, were found gruesomely killed by an axe in their home around Beaumont, Texas, some 133 miles west of Lafayette. The other difference was that while the previous victims had been black families, the Cassaways were a mixed-race couple leading some investigators to speculate racism was a motive. While the main things tying the Beaumont murders to the ones in Louisiana were weapon used and timing, officials only had thin leads for any given case, let alone all of them together. Word had gotten back to Sheriff Lacoste that the common-law wife of a local sharecropper by the name of Nina Porter had been talking about suspecting her husband, Raymond Barnabet, might have something to do with the murders. So the sheriff showed up one day and arrested him. Raymond had made somewhat of a name for himself as a petty criminal and his family, which included the aforementioned Nina, his son Zephyrin, and daughter Clementine, was not viewed much better. Well, the Barnabet family was uh, considered, in the words of one of the people that testified against them, at, uh, at the trial, were they were considered to be filthy, shifty, and degenerate examples of the lowest African type. And that's a quote from a newspaper. But uh, there was a lot of uh, questioning in there about and undertones uh, about Clementine Barnabet and her pedigree. Had she been into some sort of prostitution? Uh, you know, how did she become the leader of a, of a particular sect of a church? And the, and the Barnabet family was, I would say, was a crime family, as we know them, not, not necessarily like uh, the mafia or uh, the Russian mob or the Yakuza or the Tongs or anything like that. But they were uh, always involved in some particular type of uh, lower level crime until this, these cases came up. Problem was, with little more than suspicion, Lacoste couldn't keep Raymond in jail, and he eventually let him go. But his freedom didn't last long, as Lacoste dug a little deeper and found credible connections to Raymond, whom he re-arrested and had indicted on murder charges. During the trial later that October, Nina, Zephyrin, and Clementine all testified against him, though each had slightly different stories as to his actions the night of the Andrus murders. Each had a different timeline, but they all agreed he had been gone all night and had come back late, covered in gore, claiming he had killed a whole family and would do the same to them if they ever spoke of it. It didn't take long for the jury to render a verdict. 
Tuesday evening, the jury in the case of Raymond Bernabet charged with the murder of the Andrews family, consisting of a father, mother, and two children, last February brought in a verdict of guilty as charged. The deed was the most fiendish one and awoke horror in the community. The officers at once began on the case and at the time arrested Bernabet as a suspect, but could not fasten the crime on him. They kept working and watching and were at last rewarded with a clue which the evidence that secured the conviction worked up and made into a chain of Bernabet. The murder was the most atrocious one and Sheriff Lacoste and his officers deserve credit for the arrest and conviction of the perpetrator. The Advertiser, October 24th, 1911. However, Raymond's lawyers immediately filed motions for a new trial, citing a few reasons. That Raymond had been drunk during the trial, which kept him from defending himself reasonably. That the jury didn't follow the judge's instructions while deliberating. And that there was no motive established. The court ruled in Raymond's favor and granted a new trial to be held. Then, a twist in the case. Lacoste was called to the home of Norbert Randall on November 27th and found the Randall family dead of an axe attack. His wife, Azima, and three children and nephew, Albert, eight, Renee, six, Norbert Jr., five, and Agnes, two, were, quote, all lying on two beds in the same room and fearfully mutilated, end quote. It appeared Norbert Sr. had also been shot in the head. A clean axe was leaning on a wall. The Randall's ten-year-old unnamed daughter had discovered them and had only survived because she had spent the night at her uncle's house. With Raymond Barnabet in jail, the full picture of this brutal mystery began to come into a bit more focus. Either he hadn't committed the murders, or he wasn't the only one involved. I asked Alan and Daryl what the likelihood was of one person being able to take out entire families in this manner. Almost impossible. Almost impossible. And, and I'll tell you why, David, is because uh, there were a lot of things that were done that there wasn't one particular signature. Okay, it, it looked like there were, there were several other people involved because there were certain things that were done. Uh, they uh, In the newspapers, they talked about how the children's fingers were separated by pieces of wood, and that was a particular symbol. One was shot. you know. Yeah, one was shot. Yeah. 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 So, um, you know, the, the signatures weren't the same. But the problem that I think Daryl and I had uh, with this particular crime is that around that time, there were a lot of axe murders going on around the United States. And they... Uh, Later on, they tried to pin, I think, <laughs> they tried to pin earlier Axeman killings to the Barnabet family, actually Clementine Barnabet, and uh, and saying it was one killer. Well, if one killer had done all those killings, he'd have to be a Superman, which I doubt that's what actually happened. But in this case, I think there was more than one person wielding an axe. Lacoste's suspicion then fell on Clementine. And soon after, deputies found what appeared to be clothing in her room, quote, saturated with human blood and covered with human brains, end quote. She was arrested along with three other men, including her brother Zephyrin. 
Some important cases will come up for disposition by the court, among them the case against Raymond Barnabé, who was convicted at the last session of assassinating the Andres family of five members last February and who secured a new trial. The grand jury will investigate the case of Raymond Barnabé's daughter, who was charged with murdering the Norbera Randall family of six last November. Reverend King Harrison is also in jail, charged as an accessory to the crime. It is thought that the entire matter of the mysterious axe murders will be investigated by the grand jury, and the probability is that some definite and satisfactory solution will be forthcoming relative to the motive or cause of these atrocious deeds. The Times-Picayune, February 16, 1912. Clementine Barnabet laughingly denied involvement in the recent murders, though the blood on her clothing told a different story. Sheriff Lacoste sent them off to a chemist in New Orleans to be tested, though there wasn't a whole lot to be learned about the blood due to the level of forensic science they had at the time. Well, Alan uh, can talk about the uh, lack. Of course, the, Alan's a, a historian and, I, and I'm a criminologist, and we kind of shared the same office for a little bit, and that's how the book kind of came about. Uh, of course, there weren't any forensics. They could tell animal blood from... Uh, person's blood and that was just about it uh they really didn't that's have all any- a, that's all a chemist could do back then was right. was tell the differences in blood and if 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 they could uh if they could have done something more then we would to go back a little bit we'd know who jack the ripper was so uh you know you have these what they call and, and the show has become very popular the alienist on on netflix if you've ever watched that show it's it's absolutely fantastic and they use what Daryl was talking about, these 20 points, back at the turn of the century to find a serial killer. And so when we talk about forensics here, of course, you know, they have the bloody axe. Okay, well, you know, everybody back then had an axe. It was a weapon of opportunity. Okay, and, and, and if you were a killer, you knew everybody was going to have one if they were there. Okay, the ability to to like for instance there was a dress that i think sheriff lacoste found that uh, clementine barnabas and there was there was some blood on there what daryl was talking about there was no way that they could actually you know get dna from from in, from back then so they, they could only tell if it was human or animal blood i'm not quite sure there was any type of resolution to that but uh, you know if you look at uh, you know, fingerprints. Well, fingerprints weren't used until 1911, and that was actually by accident. So when we look at the forensics back then, we have to rely on eyewitness accounts and whether you have a really good interrogator that's interrogating a suspect that can peel through all those layers that, uh, and I'm going to use this, you know, I may get str- that a psychopath may use to get out of a particular crime. So the, your question as far as forensics is concerned, it was very limited very limited and the study the study of this type of murder back then was really not even in its infancy it wasn't even conceived very well at the time so we're dealing with you know you have to have an eyewitness fingerprinting the the, the fingerprinting came along as as a result of i believe it was in ohio or michigan where somebody had freshly painted a porch and somebody went in and murdered somebody in the house and then put their hands on the por- on the porch where it was sticky, you know, it would get sticky, and they identified the killer from those fingerprints. So it was actually by accident. So as far as forensics are concerned, they were very, very limited back then. Very, very limited. 
though a handful of people told the police they had seen her on the streets when the murders supposedly took place. Police were skeptical, and Clementine couldn't explain the blood-soaked clothes found in her closet. Another hitch in the case came when the coroner's examination concluded that Norbert Randall had been shot after he had died, which was odd, and the pistol had not been located. During this time, her brother Zephrin and the other men being held were released. Zephrin had established an alibi, and police didn't have enough evidence on any of them to keep him in jail. Clementine, however, became suspect number one, though they had a hard time believing she had acted alone. Lacoste continued to investigate her background, and soon found some pretty interesting information that shines some light on a possible motive behind the crimes. It seemed Clementine was part of a local cult called the Church of Sacrifice. Well, basically, if you don't mind me, Daryl, answering no, this question. No, I'm interested to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> okay. All right. Fine. Anyway, um, I think that the, the Church of Sacrifice was a sect of a particular church because there was a reverend that uh, you know, said that she was a uh, she was a member of his church. And basically, it's very simple. It took a lot of things that, um, you know, I've had this question a couple of times on some other show. Well, two other shows, actually, about uh, was voodoo involved in this, you know? And basically, I think the Church of Sacrifice believed in blood atonement. And if you get someone that believes things literally, which I do believe Clementine Barnabet did believe literally. Um, I think that's what the Church of Sacrifice was all about. This was a sect of a church. You know, these people would go to church on Sunday, and then maybe the the pastor would leave them wanting for something, you know, and people would leave the church and they go, well, wait a minute, you can't do that. Well, the church wouldn't really do anything about it, but the sect would. And it's that atonement in blood. So I think it was... Um, I don't think it was part of any particular religion. It was more of, uh, I don't want to use the word devout, um, fanatical maybe. You know, people that take the Bible literally, and I think that's what it what that was all about. Somebody taking it into their own hands. Well, psychiatrists found that that she that that Clementine herself was morally depraved, you uh, yeah, unusually ignorant, mm-hmm. low grade mentality, and that really was probably deficient in order to uh, do some of the things that she was saying she did and that she was an imbecile or idiotic. We, did, Of course, we're not uh, not supposed to use those terms today. Maybe in our homes we do, but we don't, don't do them out there. Puzzle pieces were coming together, but unfortunately not fast enough. While Clementine and Raymond were being held, two more sets of murders occurred. January 18th, A woman in Crowley went with a neighbor to check on her daughter, Marie Warner. They found yet another grisly scene. Another horrible crime was discovered at noon on Friday, when the dead bodies of Marie Warner, a woman about 30 years old, and her three children were found in a hut in a section of town called the Promised Land. All four had been slain with an axe, and the bloody implement was found in the house, but no clue to the murderer has so far been found. The children were Pearl, a girl aged nine years, Gary, a boy aged seven, and Harriet, a girl aged five. It was a little before noon when the discovery of the crime was made. Harriet Crane, mother of the murdered woman, called at her house but found the cottage was apparently empty. 
a neighbor named Bob Robinson was induced to enter the hut and found the mangled remains of the four occupants lying on a bed in the front room. From the appearance of the house, it would seem that at least some of the occupants were killed in the back room and their bodies removed to the front room. All four bodies were found lying across the bed, face downward, in the front room. There was no indication of a struggle, and it is supposed that they were killed in their sleep. A blood-stained axe, found in the room where the bodies lay, is the only evidence that has so far been discovered. From the Crowley Crier, January 27, 1912. And then, 52 miles west in Lake Charles, another. The latest outrage laid at the doors of the sacrifice sect was the murder of the five members of the Broussard family at Lake Charles two weeks ago. Felix Broussard was industrious and intelligent and lived happily with his wife and three children. Although none of the family was sick, he is said to have remarked to a friend the day before the tragedy They were all going home to glory and going mighty soon, a circumstance which is pointed out as indicating that, although he was aware of his impending fate and that of his family, he either acquiesced in it or was too terror-stricken to avert it. The morning following, the bodies of the five victims were found stretched upon their beds. Felix Broussard and his wife were found in one room, brained with an axe, which was found under the bed. The blade was clean, indicating that the blunt head had been used to crush the skulls of the victims. Strangely enough, as it seemed at first, the investigators found little blood to mark the scene of this butchery. The explanation was apparent, however, when a visit to the children's room disclosed that the blood of the victims had been caught up in a huge bucket which having done service at the slaughter of the parents, had then been removed to the children's room to perform a similar office there. Perhaps the strangest feature of this tragedy was the fact that the fingers of each hand of the victims were stretched apart by the murderers, those of the children being wedged open with paper and fastened with pins. The significance of this discovery became more apparent when it was found that above the door of the Broussard house, the words Human 5 had been inscribed and suggests that the sacrifice sect shared the belief in the mysticism surrounding the number 5. From the El Paso Herald, March 14, 1912. Two sets of footprints had been found at the Crowley house, but not even dogs could track a scent at the time. And in addition to the human five found at the Lake Charles house, a biblical inscription was found written in blood on the front door. Psalm 9:12, When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. Lacoste decided to find out more about this church of sacrifice and arrested the pastor connected to this apparent cult, Reverend King Harris. On the request of the authorities here, Chief of Police Harris of Jennings arrested and brought over here Sunday. King Harris, the pastor of what is known as the Sacrifice Church in Jennings, Harris was arrested as a suspect in connection with the Nobert Randall murder here in November because it is believed that the Sacrifice sect is something on the order of the Council of God sect of New Orleans. It is known that on the night of the murder, this Harris 
held a meeting in a house about one half block from the Randall home and Randall and his family are said to have been at the meeting. While the officers are confident they have two of the persons implicated in these horrible butcheries of whole families in jail, they have believed that there are others which believe a similar murder Thursday night in Crowley of another family confirms and leads to the suspicion that the murders may be the result of some fanatical belief or teachings. This is what led up to the arrest of Preacher Harris, and they hope soon to solve the mystery of these atrocities. The Advertiser, January 23, 1912. Reverend Harris maintained the position that his church did not advocate wanton killings, nor were any of them excused by his teachings. The black populace of southern Louisiana was understandably anxious and paranoid by that time. No doubt the newspapers at the time had a hand in stoking fears as well. Increased patrols and local vigilance helped a bit, but unfortunately did not stop the carnage. The brutal murder of a mother, her son, and two daughters is the seventh of a series of similar crimes which have been committed in the territory between Crowley, Louisiana, and Beaumont, Texas within the last few months. The similarity of the elemental circumstances leaves no doubt but that all the murders were committed by the same person and that there is some eccentric motive for the crimes. A total of 30 people have been killed in seven families in identically the same manner, with the same instrument and with the same absence of material motive. The fright which has overtaken communities in the Louisiana towns following the killings there has been accentuated here, and the killing here has again stirred all southwest Louisiana with mystery and fear of the return of the fiend who wills and acts with a viciousness no less horrible than it is unexpected and unwarranted. The victims of last Sunday night's tragedy are Hattie Dove, age 30, Ernest Dove, aged about 14 years, Ethel Dove, aged about 16 years, Jesse Quirk, aged about 18 years. Yesterday morning, shortly before 7 o'clock, a neighbor came to the house and discovered the havoc with which had been wrought by the bloodthirsty fiend. The axe with which the crime was committed was left in the room. Near it was a cloth upon which the murderer had wiped his bloody hands. The axe was found to be the property of someone who lived about two blocks from the scene of the murder. It has been taken from the yard, and another axe was left in its stead. Lafayette Advertiser, February 23, 1912. Shortly after that, Lacoste received a poorly written letter from New Orleans alluding to the case, which stated, quote, There is a leader who goes from town to town selecting victims. End quote. The sheriff had had suspicions along those lines, and the notes served to reinforce those suspicions. He was he was a bloodhound, though. He, yeah, Lacoste, he was way. a bloodhound. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed like mm-hmm. he kind of had that gut feeling that didn't let him settle for stuff. Because some of the, some of the things that he followed up on was because 
he wasn't sure that um, he bought whatever they were selling. And so he just seemed like he kept going after, you know, the truth of it. Does that sound about right for him? Exactly. It's a, it's, it's a, David, I think it, it it's with every police officer, and you could ask Daryl this. I mean, I was a legal investigator for a while before I became a teacher, you know, a history teacher. And Daryl's been in law enforcement for a long time. Uh, it's that also, it, it feels like that inherent feeling of suspicion. There's always an inherent you know, um, and and I think uh, Lacoste just uh, I wanted to we wanted to profile him to show him as like uh, Cajun Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> All right. It, it didn't come off that way, but uh, we wanted to portray him like that because without him being so dogged and, and in pursuit of what was going on, we never would have known. I mean, I the first time I heard about Clementine Barnabet was seven years ago. I didn't know anything about this. And, and I was, uh, you know, Louisiana history teacher. I never knew anything about it. So uh, I think if, if it had not been for Lacoste and, uh, and, and, you know, he tried to draw in some sort of uh, elementary forensics. And, you yeah, know, then also, so, uh, Alan, not, to go ahead. And we always say not to interrupt you, but that's what I'm doing. So I'm OK, sorry. that's fine. I, it's just, <laughs> Being a police officer and I and I am still a, a sergeant with the local police department here. Uh, and and I, but I, my real job is teaching full time. Old time policing is really just your hunches, what we call hunches or what we call, they were really probably based on observations and what we would now call body language. And of course, just how the person presented themselves and the things that persons said to them. Police officers uh, are uh, maligned a lot, but I'll tell you what, it's pretty, pretty tough to fool any cop that's done it four or five, six years, exactly, it's pretty yeah. tough to, to lie to them. They, not that they can put it together. So this guy was really, uh, you know, a great precursor to, to what we have today. And, and that's the backbone of policing is just going with your gut. But it's more than your gut. I think people communicate themselves, you know. And then on April 2nd, 1912, Clementine decided it was time to confess. In Crowley, I entered the house with one of the women while the other kept watch. And as I had my axe in my hand, I committed the murders. I struck the man first. And just as I did so, the woman woke up. So I struck a blow in her face with the butt end of the axe and, and failed her. Then I struck her once or twice, you know, just to make sure she was dead. Now, once that was done, it was actually an easy matter to get rid of the small children. You know, we thought it was better to kill them than to just leave them as orphans as, as they would suffer, you know. From Crowley, we we came back as far as rain together. You know, one of the three stopped it in rain and the other two, myself and another, came to Lafayette. Later, we were joined by the third who told us how the officers had searched for the murderers all around her. And we never spoke of committing any murders until sometime in February. You see, because the night before an election, we knew that all the officers would be busy politicking. You know, we went to the refinery and there we laid our plans. Not even knowing who would be our victim or our victims. When we reached the railroad crossing, we saw a light burning in the cabin near uh, Roma Gosa store. We decided that was a good place. And we went there. 
myself, and one of the women entered the house, and I struck Timmy, the man, first, then his wife, and afterwards his two small children, one of whom was an infant in a, in a cradle near the bed. Should we almost overlook him had he not woke up and started crying? I turned around and struck him in the forehead, killing him instantly. We took the man and the woman and placed them in a kneeling position and left the house. I was I was near the house the next morning when Timmy's brother came to the house and, and called them. And not getting an answer, he looked through the window and saw him dead and he began crying. <laughs> and I, I came up to him and I said, what happened? What happened? And he told me, and I went to go notify their parents who, who live nearby. You know, I actually helped wash them and prepare them for, for burial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when asked to tell about the last murder, which she had committed, she said, It was on a, a Sunday night. Yeah, we went. We went out for a frolic and, and went to a meeting at uh, the God Sacrifice Church. And after we left, we secured an ox and, and took a bundle of clothes with us, which we carried. We met two of the night officers. And when we saw them coming, we hit the ox in the grass to the officers past us. And then we went back to get it. And then we went up a little way up the street and saw someone else coming. And then I had to lay the, the ox behind a tree. And then when we saw who it was, it was King Harrison the minister of the God Sacrifice Church. We simply told him that there had been two men fighting up the street and wouldn't want the officers to see him around there and arrest him. He did exactly what we said and went around. We were all alone in that street. So we crawled to the house, entered from behind, and killed them. Once we killed them, I took a pistol I had hidden under my dress and shot Norbert Randall, the man I had killed. I struck him, I don't know, somewhere in the breast of the body, and I got the pistol, you know, from my brother's house during the afternoon and returned it that same night because I can't be seen with it should the officers catch me. <laughs> After this, we went uptown to talk the matter over. I returned home, God, it was 2 o'clock in the morning and went to bed. Well, I stayed till I was wakened by the man who I worked for about 5 the next morning. I worked around that house and, until I was arrested by Mr. Peck. It was, it was about 10 in the morning. The river was deep, the water was cold. I'm all alone. Watch the sun go down. According to the Lafayette Advertiser, when she was, quote, asked if there had been any agreement made not to tell on one another, she said that there had been such an agreement made, but she wanted to tell her own part of it so as to clear her conscience. Hola, David, me amo Brent. Bonjour, uh, Brent. Je m'appelle David. You didn't do Spanish. I thought if we were going to do this together, we'd do the same language. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's uh, that's on brand for us. 
I, that, I I just thought romance languages was yeah. the key. Everything I say is romantic, and that is thanks to Rosetta Stone. <laughs> you guys, we, we've been touting these things forever. We love Rosetta Stone, and we actually are users. David, you've really been using it even for longer than I. What's your experience been like? Oh, it's been great. The thing is, uh, you really get to learn how to speak and think in that language with it, so... It's very high on pronunciation, too, so you can, you know, learn how to speak. And, you know, our show is all about proper pronunciation. <laughs> In that pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. But it's it, they design it for long-term retention, you know. It, and, yeah. Uh, if you don't get the pronunciation right, you, you say it until you do, and then, you know, that, that just seeps into your head. Well, and that's why, you know, this has been trusted by extras for 30 years, and there's over 25 different languages that you can learn and people, millions and millions of users use it because like you said, it does seep in and you're using it with, you know, you get speech recognition and mm -hmm. it, it hears you. You get to use like the built-in true accent features that gives you this pronunciation, which is super convenient and you can do it at your own time. And I don't know if you can know this, but I'm all about value and you get a one-time purchase, 25 languages. If I learned all 25 languages, I'd be so confused. Or really cool. <laughs> I have to go in and out. But you'd be real marketable. But literally, though, this is something that we use, and we have both of us have given the seal of approval because we want to do this long term, and uh, it's something that uh, it works, you know. And we don't yeah. we don't do long term um, stuff like this, and this is this is the one that we've chosen, and we love it. So, all you guys got to do don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now, as we've told you a thousand times, and it's always now. Right now, get now. started. For Larry, limited time, his Air 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. How much? 50%. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your unnatural life. Wow. Redeem, redeem, redeem. How do they do it? Rashate, you're 50% oh. off. <laughs> Rashate. <laughs> redeem it. 50% off rosettastone.com slash today. Do it today. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when Brent and I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, man, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Brent is trying to plan right now and says that it works like a charm from Chicago to Nashville as he makes his big old move. Mint Mobile is working for him. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network, and you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. So ditch the overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash hysteria. That's mintmobile, M-I-N-T-M-O-B-I-L-E dot com slash hysteria, H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hysteria.
$45 upfront payment required. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Clementine's confession has been received with varying shades of belief owing to the positive way she swore in the trial of her father and the misleading information she has given as to her accomplices. End quote. Clementine Barnabay, who a few days ago confessed that she had murdered many people in this section of Louisiana in the last year, today told the motive which she claims impelled her to commit the crimes. Moral perversion, she said, was responsible for a passion to shed human blood and take human life that she could not control. When this impulse came upon her, she said she could not rest until she had killed an infant and pressed its form to her breast. To a representative of the Times Democrat, she not only repeated the confession which she had made previously to District Attorney Brunet and Sheriff Lacoste, but added new details that she had either purposely concealed or forgotten when she told the story of her connection with the butcheries of a few days ago. The confession today was made to the correspondent in the presence of the jailer and Andre Martin, a member of the State Board of Equalization for this district. The story came from her lips without the slightest display of nervousness or emotion, except when she described the effect of the moral perversion and passion. Then she trembled violently. But when this emotion ceased, a laugh and a smile indicating intense satisfaction spread over her face. When asked how many people she had killed, she replied that she could not remember exactly, but she knew she had slain 17. She gave the names of the 17 in Lafayette, Crowley, and Rain that she remembered killing. She selected the infant that she wished to kill and deliberately carried out her plans. She said in order to kill the babe that she desired to press it to her bosom, she found it necessary to murder the entire family to escape detection. From the Times Democrat, New Orleans, April 4th, 1912. After she confessed, which was very interesting and abrupt and not at all the normal timeline or process about somebody confessing. So that that kind of set me on a on a different course. But she enjoyed uh, fondling, sexually fondling either the males or the females uh, after after the murders, uh, which makes me believe that somebody else was there, too, you know, and uh, there's a couple couple of other things that she said uh, as well that kind of gives you that idea. How much credibility do you put into that confession slash her guilt, I guess? Well, Alan, what did what did the sheriff think about that confession? 
Well, you know, when she when they first started interrogating her, I mean, she laughed uncontrollably. Yeah. All right. And before Lacoste, the confession, before the confession, you mean? Well, actually, when it began, yeah. I mean, she came in and denied everything at first, and then all of a sudden, she just can't, like you said, came out of the blue, and she was laughing uncontrollably. You called her sphinx-like. Yeah. Well, she was she was sphinx-like. You know, when people started looking at her and saying that, you know, she had a sphinx-like attitude when Sheriff Lacoste tried to approach her. I mean, she detectives began the interrogation of her and you know she laughed like i said uncontrollably and he believed you know if she was going to go for an insane plea this would have been perfect right i mean you know especially in louisiana at that time uh but at first she stated that she had nothing to do with the murders and then like you said all of a sudden it came out of the blue and then she just shut up you know she became this like uh, we said in the book a sphinx like had this things like attitude. What, what kind of personality would would uh, just not say anything for a long time? Yeah, because they separated them, and then spill it all at once. Yeah, spill it all at once. I mean, but you know, the thing is, you're looking at as many murders as she had done. You know, she doesn't. Basically, we we stand here. I mean, there's you know 43 murders committed in Louisiana. You're going to be executed. Yeah. You know, if it was a man, it was, but the thing is, you know, and I cite at the end of that chapter that, uh, there was a law that was passed in 1902 that, you know, death sentences could be commuted for good behavior. I mean, and she even attempted to escape a couple of times during that time, you know, why would you put your life on the line and confess to those types of murders? Yeah. Unless you were trying to protect something. Exactly, or someone. Someone. There you go, David. You you got you you're taking a, a motive line there. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Just putting the puzzle pieces together. There didn't seem to be hardly anybody that believed she carried out these awful acts alone. And partly for that reason. Zephyrin was arrested once again and charged with the crimes alongside her and their father. With the confession now in the papers, people fixated on the conjure bags and cult aspect, attributing much of the ordeal to voodoo. Lacoste actually went and arrested Joseph Thibodeau in New Iberia and brought him into a lineup, and Clementine positively identified him which only added to her growing legend and religious misappropriation. Okay, the conja bags, she went to this person in order to gain protection. Protection for what? What was she planning? Okay, so so th- this tells you that, okay, she was a firm believer in, in what they call hoodoo, uh, you know, and, and voodoo, but... Are you still reading the Bible? That's the question I would ask. Are you still reading the Bible? If you're still reading the Bible, then you know murder is wrong. Of course, then again, if you're taking you know these people for atonement and blood for things that they have done that only she would know right. outside of this pious life. Yeah. Um, yeah, she I mean, she traveled and and got these conja bags for everybody. Well, the people that were in, you know, in her party, and they're supposed to protect you from being exposed. Where do you put your faith here? You know, it's a, it's a gumbo. Oh, oh yeah, it is, it is a gumbo. And it's also, you know, kind of, it's very confusing. Uh, that part was kind of ambiguous for us, I think, when we were doing the research. And because you either believe in one or the other. Well, yeah, that's a really nice juxtaposition that Alan put in there uh, 
about the the hoodoo and the conja bags, and and it kind of negates some of the. To me, if I'm listening to this stuff and I'm the I'm sheriff of cost, which I kind of try to look at it from that perspective, uh, probably more than others. Uh, looking at it from a modern day psychological perspective, it's it's different, but. You know, it, it just it just didn't fit, and Harris didn't fit. Reverend Harris came in, and and uh, Lacoste let him go, yeah. and and you know, and obviously saw that he was on the wrong track with that. And then this woman, Alan, was really good when he wrote that. He wrote these bags. The old women assured them. Well, if the old woman was assuring them, they must have asked for assurance. Mm-hmm. Hey, that's the way I. Not a. You know, I've mentioned that, Alan, but that's the way I read it. When right, right. I mean, but, you know, voodoo has been around for 8,000 years. Not here in Louisiana. It's been around for a long time. And I think a lot of people, and and I hope your audience doesn't take this the wrong way. A lot of people, when they when they pray to God, you know, they say, you know, when is this going to happen? And, and it's all in God's time. And voodoo seemed in their minds to rush things, to bring things to a conclusion. Give them a little more control. Right. A little bit more control. So I think when she went to this woman, she was looking for a way to to commit certain crimes and not get caught. So when when she went to New Iberia and got the conja bags, she was looking for a way to be shielded, I guess, which which is kind of weird, David, because then Later on, when she first gets taken in by Sheriff Lacoste, she denies the murders, and then she finally confesses to them. She she is just a, a an enigma. Uh, she really was an enigma. Yeah, it seems like that definitely makes you think that she had all this planned in mind, at least. And because I think you say in the book that, well, she got the bags for protection, and then she decided to test them to see if they. Yeah, work. she dressed as a man. Yeah, yeah she dressed as a man and. And then, uh, you know, went to some unidentified residence and confessed to that one. Uh, I'm not really sure the historical record had actually told us where that was. Uh, but, uh, you know, she confessed it. And, and I think a lot of times, and I'll give you an example here, David, and, and Daryl may be able to back me up on this. There was a guy named Henry Lee Lucas yeah, uh, a few years back. And he was confessing to all kinds of murders going on. And I think a lot of serial killers, per se, get this syndrome where they say, well, I'll confess to this. I'll confess to that. Maybe I'll buy more time. This may have been what she had been doing as well. Want to be recognized. Oh, yeah. I want to be recognized. You know, a lot of serial killers get involved in their own investigations. Well, and, and all kinds of killers do that. Uh, mm-hmm. Harrison Klebold in, in Columbine oh, had yeah. famous quality too, and, and and that's it's they weren't psycho psychopathic. They were they were they, were, they had a psychosis, mm-hmm. yeah, but they they can kind of do that. But okay. when uh, the Clementines can, conf- if you read her confession, it sounds really good. I mean, it sounds uh, like she was really there. The way that the way that she talked about hitting one above the eye and where they positioned the arm was and those kind of details that only like the person that was there would know. So mm-hmm. I'm not saying that Clementine Barnabet was uh, not the perpetrator. Right. Joseph Thibodeau claimed to have never met her before and the weekly Iberian newspaper said he was, quote, a well-known character here. He has ever been regarded as peaceful in disposition and harmless in intention. 
He was noted for the practice of conjuring warts away and telling the fortune of those who would invoke his art. None here who know him believe him guilty of willfully advising the woman, Clementine Barnabet, or of knowing her intention of starting her career of crime. End quote. Clementine was indicted by a grand jury on April 4, 1912, but once again, tragedy struck one short week later. San Antonio, April 13th. Five more were added to the list of axe murders in Louisiana and in Texas Thursday night when the family of William Burton was wiped out. Neighbors going to Burton's house found him. His wife, two children, and Leon Evers did. The heads of the victims had been crushed in with an axe and butcher knives were left thrust into the bodies of the male victims. The children were not attacked with the knives, but killed by the blows with an axe. Every circumstance surrounding the murders resembles the Louisiana murders, and there is little doubt in the minds of the authorities that the victims were either killed by a member of the same fanatics or that the murderer was inspired by the accounts he had read of the crimes done east of here. There is no clue to the perpetrators of the murder. One point which is significant and which agrees with the theory that this crime was committed by the members of a sacrificed church is that there were five victims. It was stated recently that the Lafayette authorities believe that the figure five had something to do with the crimes and that the murderers selected families of five for their victims. In this connection, it was stated that in one case, where there were four victims, the woman was about to become a mother. And in another case, where there were six victims, it was shown that one of them came in unexpectedly to spend the night with the relatives. The one thing that disagrees with the theory that the murder was committed by the fanatics is the distance of this city from the scene of the other crimes. But sufficient time has elapsed to allow the murderers to make their way here, even if they came by slow stages. Everything indicates that there were more than one person connected with the killing here. Burton bore a good reputation, being a hard worker, and was not inclined to fanaticism himself. He had no enemies so far as it is known, and the motive of the murders was not robbery, but evidently a desire to kill either for the pleasure of committing a crime or to carry out some of the tenets of the faith attributed to the sacrificed church. The new murders here make a total of 40 killed in this state and Louisiana. From the Lafayette Advertiser, April 16, 1912. Nation, we want pictures of your dogs! That's just a personal request from me, but while you look for a good one, let me tell you about something near and dear to mine, Brent's hearts. Your dog's health. You may have noticed lots of dogs suffering from health issues these days. Joints, odors, it's not good. Actress Katherine Heigl noticed these issues too, and after a ton of research, there was one place she found we can look to support any dog's health. Their food. So she created Superfood Complete, food for your four-legged friend that's made with over 30 of the healthiest ingredients on the planet, including several superfoods vital to your dog's health. Her company, Badlands Ranch, also supports the Jason Debus Heigl Foundation, which has helped rescue thousands of dogs and place them in loving homes. 
Now, I know Brent has used Superfood Complete with his lovable meatballs, and they absolutely love it. He said it's easy to prepare. Both his guys grow crazy for it, and he loves knowing what he's giving them is healthy and full of ingredients that are actually beneficial to his little rapscallions. You can try it for yourself by going to BadlandsRanch.com slash hysteria and order right now to get up to 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to BadlandsRanch.com slash hysteria today. When it rains five days in the sky, As much as it seemed like the madness wouldn't stop, things kept unraveling for the human five. On the 21st, Zephyrin confessed to murdering the Andrus family with his father, and investigators continued to build their case until Clementine's lawyers moved for her mental condition to be examined by psychiatrists, which we touched on earlier. Of course, everybody wants to know about psychopathy and, and psychopaths today, but there wasn't really that much information. The, the, the doctors that that uh, did meet with her and, and testified in court certainly gave what would be of uh, Barnabet some of the characteristics of psychopathy. There's 20 characteristics on psychopathy. The first one wasn't the, the psychology checklist for a psychopath wasn't developed till uh, Cleckley did that in 1941. Uh, but uh, Hare did that and redid it in 1991, and that's the one that the DSM manual uses now. So uh, the astute reader that's maybe got some knowledge about psychological MRIs and that kind of thing can, can find some things in there. But she doesn't really seem to me to rise to uh, a psychopath. So that kind of points towards uh, a different motivation then, if she was... Uh... <laughs> If she was, in fact, uh, behind all these, or at least had some part, I would guess. Well, was she behind them, or was she the fall person? Mm, right. For the family. Aha. Uh -huh. You know, that's, that's one of the things. Uh, did I give away too much, Alan? No, not at all. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, do you think maybe perhaps that, you know, they think they have their killer in jail and the real killer was out there doing the damage? I mean, it, this thing could go in several different directions. Yeah. Which happened. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh yeah, and that's part. That's part of the mystery, and and also we can't forget that uh, blacks were certainly in a subservient role. Probably didn't really want to talk to anybody whites. She was prop Barnabet would have been. I think David, you kind of hit on it uh, in front of those psychiatrists. Probably they may have read more into from a racial perspective. And her demeanor of not wanting to talk to whites or being uncomfortable generally from a racial perspective, it, they may have made some uh, incorrect uh, conclusions. Yeah, or, or assumed from the beginning even to go further. Sure. I went down, down to the railroad and I saw your train. I went down 
judged sane. She was put on trial and on October 25th found guilty and sentenced to life at Louisiana State Penitentiary. Not much is known about what happened to the rest of her family after that. She escaped prison on July 31, 1913, but was immediately caught and brought back, afterwards apparently becoming a model prisoner. After serving time for 10 years, she was released from prison on August 28, 1923, and never heard from again. murders largely seem to have stopped after her sentencing, save for one in November of 1912 in Philadelphia, Mississippi, a family of three found killed by an axe. I asked if this had any connection to the 1918 and 19 murders of the Axeman of New Orleans. Well, no, the time frames don't work. Yeah, the time frames don't. However, now, however, there were some Axeman type killings that took place in New Orleans between 1910 and 1917 I found later on um, I'm working on another book right now where I'm I want to include that chapter in it but there were just certain things about it you know like I said uh, I don't think the axeman was connected to these at all especially when you look at some of the things that were looked at that were left at the crime scenes in this one there was one in uh, in the uh, the Felix Broussard, which took place on the 21st of January, 1912, where they left something on the front door, which appeared to be a Bible inscription written in blood. Right. Uh, you know, when he maketh the acquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. I don't think the Axeman would have done that. Now, when you talk about the Axeman somewhat, the allegedly there was a letter written uh, in March of 1919, where he said, if everybody's playing jazz, you know, we're, we'll, we won't, I won't visit the city. You know, I have an intimate relationship with the angel of death. But in that letter, I don't think it's authentic because there's no mention of any of the details of any of the crimes that were, that, that you know, that was, that were not released to the press. Yeah. And a real murderer wants them to know that he knows. Exactly. So, uh, in, in answer to your question, David, no, I don't think it was him or her, uh, whoever the ax man may be, ax person may be. This case is obviously disturbing and frightening for the depths of human depravity it illustrates. In the end, it was estimated that some 43 people had died of this senseless violence. And while it's obvious Clementine didn't commit all the murders, it's been speculated that she had influence over others to do so, not unlike a cult leader. Well, she was in jail for, for I think it was like 12 or 15 of them or something yeah, like that. Yeah, but I think, uh, well, you know, there, there could have been, you know, followers will do anything. I mean, and on, on David, I believe on the episode that you saw on the YouTube channel where we talked about Clementine Barnabet, it talks about the influence that cult leaders can have on their followers. Mm -hmm. So I think she was, she may have been that powerful, but you know how, how Daryl answered the question about her being manipulative. I'm not sure it was a copycat 
I think there were some people that may have taken up the mission of the Church of Sacrifice, but a uh, circle of five. But, you know, I mean, was, which was the last one where mm-hmm. they did find ties to that church. Now, the one in Texas, they, they it, as far as I know, unless you tell me different, Alan, it wasn't in the in the in the in the publication. The uh, one of the murders in Texas, they didn't have a direct connection to uh, the church. Not saying there couldn't have been one because it wasn't that far away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, from what I understand, uh, they may have not a direct connection to the church, but they may have been involved with uh, the, typ- the, the typical belief system. They, I believe they were in South Louisiana at one time before they moved to Texas. So, and and records are so old sometimes too, David and, and Daryl, that, you know, or they're lost and we can't really make that type of connection other than the actions of certain people and what the newspapers put. And of course, down here, I don't know where you're from, uh, but uh, Louise in, in New Orleans, Times-Picayune uh, at that time, as it is now, you have to read between the lines in order to gather any type of information. So it's not just basically staring at you there. But I think she was responsible for a good, yeah, 12 to 15 of them. I, I agree with Daryl. I'm not saying the rest were copycats. Well, I, don't, I don't know how responsible she really was. Uh, of course, we took some time to ruminate on on those things, but that's what we want our our readers to do. There's there's a lot of lot more clues. I think she was more manipulatable than manipulative. Okay. Uh, okay. O- overall, and uh, I think if you if a, like our good sheriff Lacoste or a, or a, the average police officer, uh, and I mean, through that, a, a truly average detective or average police officer would start considering all the other p- potential players and see how the information that was presented about Barnabet would fit on them and when it would fit on them. And I think you can get a different perspective. I, ha- I, I have a different, whole different theory that I'm not going don't really want to say who I think it is. Oh, keeping secrets. It's <laughs> hmm. first I've heard. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, we we talked we talked about it early in the office uh, or sometime sometime a long mm-hmm. time ago. And oh yeah. With the story, but the, you know we just you just kind of had to had to do the story and then the rewrite and stuff. But like you said, we didn't want to give out too much. Yeah. One of the things with the the murders also for Clementine, it seems like, and and I think this is something I've heard. You could correct me if I'm wrong. That um, happens in either serial killers or cases like this where the murders sort of evolve as they go along. And I was, it, it was interesting to hear that, um, like you said, the Bible inscription showed up in one scene uh, that, that may or may not, have, I forget if that was the one, they also had the bucket under the bed. I believe that was the bucket under the bed. Yeah. And, and there was also the, the wooden, the wooden sticks that were left in the, in the, in the children, you know, and, 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 and another thing too, Clementine said, you know, the reason why she killed the children was because she didn't want to see them as orphans. Right. Right. How magnanimous of her. Yeah. What? You know, and then when you look at, uh, there was, there was another one where the bodies were lined up on the bed. Uh, uh, you're talking about an evolution of a signature. Yeah. You've hit on another one of the embedded intricacies that's, that's there for uh, the astute reader to unearth. Uh, And the reader would probably have to know that there are two kinds of psychopathic murderers or serial killers, which we're not saying that that, that's what's happening. 
but there's org- there's organized and disorganized. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And some of these are organized and vicious, which is psychopathic, and others are are seem to be because of the 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 things you just mentioned about the, the blood and and whatnot and the bucket seem to be more more organized and in, in planned and and the phrase uh, that was put out there. Well. You know, Daryl and and David, one of the biggest examples of a disorganized killer was a gentleman, and I use the term loosely, by the name of Richard Trenton Chase. Um, He was a serial killer that only killed six people, only six people, but, you know, more than than one's bad to me, uh, in Sacramento, California in the early 1970s. He was used by Robert Ressler of the FBI as the quintessential disorganized killer. Because what he did was he didn't do the same thing twice, but he, he was actually known as the vampire of Sacramento. He would collect the blood in a cup and drink their blood while he was at the scene. That was that was part of his signature. So when when Daryl mentions, you know, organized and disorganized uh, killers, organized, I, I don't think there's anything organized about murder, really. But, uh, you know, Daryl had mentioned that distinction. I just thought I would uh, let the audience know. You ever watched Dexter, the series Dexter? Oh, yeah. Some. Uh, no, I haven't. I just, I got to step away from this stuff once in a while, Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I know. Yeah, when you, when you get, when you're getting into it, it, it kind of gets. Sure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very heavy. And what we said in the foreword, and, and Alan and I were very adamant about this from the beginning, beginning was victims. Let's, let's, let's try not to forget the victims. So if the, the foreword is, is interesting and, I think in that regard, that's if we remember the victims, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. no matter how long ago it was. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, uh, females, uh, psychopaths are, are very, very rare. Most psychopaths are males, but, but there are, there are some female psychopaths. You never met my first wife. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's pretty funny. <laughs> But I wrote a I wrote a paper sometime back on on the history of uh, women in the courtroom who were found insane, and the, the the courts just didn't want to find women insane. They they thought that they were the fairer sex, and that their monthly period caused these problems, and you know they just really couldn't do anything like that because they were mothers, and that that still is alive and well in our uh, Alan divorce structure today oh yeah but there was also the the point i wanted to make uh daryl helped me out with my the third book which was called bloodstained louisiana where we talk about the unwritten law and that was a defense that a woman could put up if like her husband cheated on her or her lover cheated on her or he promised to marry her and he didn't that gave her through the courts in an unwritten law the ability to take her revenge and a lot of a couple of women were found not guilty, especially in Louisiana. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Huh. Uh, one of the interesting uh, sidebars that, that Alan and I experienced when we were doing the uh, we were at the uh, featured authors at the Louisiana Book Fest in 2015, and we 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 got the sales figures from uh, the publisher, and a whole bunch of books were sold to the uh, bookstore there at Louisiana State and the law library. Actually, the law library, library. Yeah, all of the law students were really into this book for about two years. Hmm. And so they used it for some some purpose that escapes us. <laughs> yeah, maybe trying to get into the head of some somebody who does this, maybe. Well, there is a, that, you know, it, it does show the relatively fundamental 
in rudimentary criminal justice system that we didn't have a system, of course, but at the time. So it does reveal that along with the fingerprints that Alan talked about already and blood spatter and uh, those things, you know, they just weren't sophisticated investigators. Although I think, I think the sheriff actually did a relatively decent job. I'm curious why she just up and was able to just walk out of jail after serving, what was it, 10 years of a lifetime sentence? Um, well, like Alan mentioned, it was the law. It was the law at the time. So she was her sentence was commuted for that? Well, I think what it has to do with is the, the Louisiana legislature, um, and, and, and take, into, take into consideration as well, you know, uh, 1902, the Louisiana legislature uh, passed an act that allowed for commutation or diminution of life sentences if the individual requested that particular relief hmm. and could demonstrate he or she had abided by the rules of the prison system and deserved clemency. Now, this is a woman that was that was convicted of how many murders? Right. You know, and most brutal type. Not to mention escaping. Oh, yeah, escaping and then coming back. Now, if you go to the Angola records, uh, uh, David, it's, it's really interesting because if you go to the Angola records, which are now online, believe it or not, under FamilySearch.com, I think it's a, a Mormon organization that put this site together. But I knew, I know um, uh, Dr. Hardy, uh, really good friends with Dr. Hardy, uh, Florent Hardy. Uh, he's retired now. He was the state archivist. And uh, whenever I used to call up there, he says, what do you want now? Because he used to talk with that accent all the time, you know. <laughs> and um, I said, well, look, I'm looking for this record. He said, all right, well, I'll get the book out for you, but you got to come look at it. And if you look at it, it'll say, owes a certain amount of time for this, owes a certain amount of time for that. And these are infractions of the rules. Well, when you go to hers, it says, well, she owes five more years for the escape attempt. But then in 1923, she walks out of Angola and for all intents and purposes, disappears from history until we look at this website that I brought up Right. that, that uh, I did some, re you know, this woman said that she was talking to her great grandmother and, uh, you know, it's like, you know, talking to an account to St. Germain, if you ever heard of that guy, sure. you know, here's those years that she talked about didn't add up at all. Because she would have Barnabet at like about 20 or 21 at the time. Of exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Or whatever it was instead mm -hmm. of like 17. Yeah. I mean, and that's why people go. And, and it, when I did the story on the True Crime Channel on uh, YouTube, mm -hmm. somebody came up and wrote, well, she lived from this year to this year. That's what it says on Wikipedia. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no. No, you can't count on Wikipedia because anybody can go in there and change it. And I've seen it happen a couple of times and, and a lot of editing things there. There are much more, you know, uh, reliable sources than than just Wikipedia. But, yeah, it was the law. To answer your question, it was the law. And it was later repealed. Uh, I, I believe it was in, in the late, uh, in, in the mid-30s. And if that was truly who she was, well, it's not to say that other things that she may have continued to murder. We, and we just don't know. In another yeah. Moment. Another name. She may have assumed enough. Uh, you know, a lot of times that happened. Um, there was a guy, I, David, I hope you don't mind me using other cases as references because uh, of certain things that come up. I love um, it. I know there's parallels okay. everywhere and I'm, I'm all for it. Oh, I yeah. think it adds to the whole tapestry of it. There was a guy 
in New Orleans in 1927. His name was Henry Moiti, and he murdered his sister-in-law and his wife because he found out that his wife was leaving him and the sister-in-law had talked her into it. And he chopped them up and he put them in some trunks and he was sentenced to life in prison. Now, this was 1927. He was released in the 1940s, went out to California and committed murder again. (laughs) So, you know, I don't think that, you know, when we talk about recidivism rates, I think amongst murderers, they're very low. Yeah. Uh, they, they, but, um, yeah, for her to get out in, in 1923 and, and, you know, we only get these little whispers uh, of things that, that, that she may have been involved in, or she may have done until this story pops up in 1985. The only reason why I put it in the book is because that was a good way to end the story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, but you know, it's partial legend and it's, it's partial fact. Thankfully, the murders finally stopped, at least in what was allegedly connected to the Human Five or the Church of Sacrifice. It's hard to know what exactly was behind all the killing, and who, for that matter. Because of her odd confession, Clementine was pinned as the head of the operation and has led some to claim she was the first black serial killer in America. Not that it's a competition. It's hard to fathom whole families being taken out in the dead of night in such a brutal manner. It proves once again that the sickness some people suffer from is scarier than any ghost in the hallway or boogeyman under the bed. Thankfully, we've come a very long way in forensics, psychology, and many fields that would have helped end the madness sooner back then. But we still have a long way to go to understand the drive and sadistic glee some human beings are capable of. Hopefully, we can learn something to help with that understanding from this case. That's the Barnabet Axe Murders, in a gruesome, seedy, well-documented nutshell. I'd like to thank Alan and Daryl for speaking with me and encourage everyone to check out their work, including Dark Bayou, which includes this particular case. It is a truly an interesting case. And we do, we did leave some things out, uh, David, I'm sorry, we do that on purpose, uh, because we want people to read the stories, you know, um, and uh, also our former attorney general had written the forward for the book. Hmm. Uh, very, very easy. He was, he was, a an adjunct instructor at Delgado when Daryl and I were both there and we asked him, Hey, Charlie, would you want to write, you know, the former state attorney general, write the forward to the book? He said, yeah, just, uh, make me look intelligent. And Daryl and I looked at each other and said, God, that's going to be hard. <laughs> yeah, you never know? mind. So, uh, <laughs> so, so, you know, we want people to go and, and, you know, get the book. It's a dark Bayou, infamous Louisiana homicides, uh, Alan Gotro and Dr. Daryl Hippensteel. Uh, also, um, for about three years now, I've been doing a, a true crime. It's called True Crime Man's Dark Imagination YouTube channel on on YouTube. Uh, and I have been covering uh, a lot of murder cases, uh, serial killers, child murderers. We did Jack the Ripper, in, as a matter of fact. That, w- that was one of the longest episodes. And we covered uh, the, from all over the world. I get, I get uh, suggestions from subscribers. And... It's at uh, youtube.com forward slash true crime 
man's dark imagination, all one word, or you can put my name in Alan Gotro and it, it'll pop up. And, and we have a lot of subscribers now and, and, you know, pe- they consider themselves really sick too. I don't know why they consider themselves sick. <laughs> And they come there and they go, got these really good stories. And there was an, an evolution with those stories as well. They got better as we got along. And um, I release stories uh, one a week, uh, usually every Wednesday. And then the week of uh, Halloween, we're doing one actually on Richard Trenton Chase. There's a plug uh, on the 28th. And then Halloween, I'm doing a live stream. Of, of an episode that I'm working on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of different from a lot of the YouTube stuff, because when you go to other YouTube channels that do true crime, a girl's putting on makeup, right. And talking about true crime and they get millions of views. And, and I'm going, Oh, you know, long well, I'm going to do it the old fashioned way. So it, it has worked out famously for us. And I still, you know, teach at, uh, at two colleges and Daryl, you know, teaches uh, full-time at, at Delgado. He teaches, um, criminal justice. So, uh, in fact, yesterday was the first time he and I had talked in over five months. Oh. So my choice. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, you know, he's, I mean, but it's not that it's not that we don't think about talking to each other. It's just that they, uh, you know, you we, busy. We, both of us have been real busy. Yeah. Oh, real busy. Yeah. I'm, I'm finishing up another book right now. So the only, the only thing I would add is that if anyone would just read Italian, Louisiana, they they would they would get they just see what a what a master writer and world class historian and thinker uh, Alan is. It's he just, wants that check bad, David. He really does. <laughs> hurting. He's hurting. He's hurting. <laughs> he knows I love him. I'm kidding. Nobody, I'm kidding. Wants, nobody wants to talk about uh, research articles that you get published, so I'm not doing that because nobody cares. <laughs> I don't even care anymore. Okay. Tell us about the the books and stuff you want us to to go to and. Also, I'm going to include the links to all these things for you guys in the show notes. And well, stuff too. you can find Dark Bayou on Amazon. You can find it on Barnes and Noble. You can find it on uh, Books a Million. Uh, all three of my I, I've written five books, but I pulled two of them off of the out of the market because one of them uh, was just the, the publisher really messed it up and I found another publisher. Uh, but it's Italian, Louisiana, uh, history, heritage, and tradition. Now, please be mindful if if your, one of your audience buys that book. It is not about one particular Italian family. It's about Italians as a whole assimilating into uh, Louisiana culture and American culture. Uh, and then there's Dark Bayou, Infamous Louisiana Homicides. And then there was one that I wrote by myself. Uh, in it was released in November 2017. It's called Bloodstained Louisiana. It covers 12 murder cases from 1897 to 1934. Uh, uh, Shreveport's Butterfly Man is in there, uh, and, uh, and 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 a couple of others. And the other, the, this one I'm working on now. I haven't even finished editing it yet, so I'm I'm not sure. But and Daryl's name is on on Italian Louisiana and and Dark Bayou. So uh, it was it was a pleasure working with him. We just haven't had a lot of time to decide what we're going to do together again. Right. So uh, and with, you know, this lockdown that we've been in. So, right. Daryl, you know, he's pretty busy because he's a, he's a sergeant on the police force. In fact, he just told me that he is a what certified hostage negotiator now. Yes, I are. And mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure I'd work hard to save you, but uh, I'd give it a shot. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. You're welcome, my friend. My good friend. <laughs> My dear friend, Al. 
I'll have links to Dark Bayou and Alan's YouTube channel in the show notes. Big thanks to Ambria, Joel, Elizabeth, Bria, Marvin, Ryan, Matt, and Kathleen for their help reading articles in Clementine's Confession for me. And huge thanks to Roxanne for helping me put this one together. It was a Herculean effort that is much appreciated. Don't forget to support the show by following Blurry Photos Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Twitch, Discord, YouTube, all the things. Really just those things. That's pretty much it. If you appreciate the work that goes into these episodes, consider becoming a patron on Patreon or drop kicking the donate button on blurryphotos.org. Or be like Thomas and buy me a coffee at coffee.com. That's ko-fi.com slash blurryphotos. Thank you, Thomas. I appreciate it. Ghost stories will be out next week, so we get a little extra of Photober. Everyone stay safe out there and have a great Halloween. For this episode of Blurry Photos, I have been David Cajun Sherlock Flora. Don't stop blur even. up that she went to this Thibodeau character and tried to get uh, or she did get a conja bag can you um, tell us a little bit about that and and what she was hoping to accomplish with that because it kind of kicked off this whole uh, apparent spree you actually read the story David that's really <laughs> wow this guy yeah, you're on you top. know he's giving us questions we can't answer here pal <laughs> you know who's <laughs> the expert now <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh-huh. You kind of like this stuff, David. <laughs>